hear the word of the Lord from Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul. For those of you I haven't met yet, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad that you're here. Like Dodd said, um, I am one of several people who would love to help you get connected. If you'd like to meet us, I look forward to hearing your story, sharing a little bit of mine. Um, it's wonderful that the Lord has brought us together uh, just like this, this morning. So if you have any questions, please come up and ask me uh, after the gathering. Uh, we are in our second week in our series through Philippians. We just started last week. Um, Dodds began with the opening and here I'm preaching uh, most of the rest of chapter one. Uh, and Philippians is a wonderful letter that Paul wrote to a church in the midst of suffering. And it, is, it has been called uh, uh, by many, the epistle of joy, Paul's epistle of joy. If we're not careful, we might think that this is the secret to living a fun life. But that's not what this letter's about. Um, in fact, our passage uh, talks about how this is not about joy because following Christ makes for a fun life. Uh, this passage today is about how following Christ shows us that real life and fulfillment and satisfaction are found before we even consider circumstances. Whether things are going well or poorly, there's life to be found and joy to be had in Christ. And so my goal this morning is to make a few observations in our passage uh, and then finish with a couple of application points, getting at, I think, the main point of what Paul is trying to communicate to us uh, 
in some ways in all of Philippians and certainly in our passage. And so let's go ahead and just jump in. Uh, For the first observation, we'll begin in verse 12. The Philippian church has been deeply concerned for Paul. As you guys might uh, remember from last week, if you heard Dodds' sermon, Paul is in prison. He's writing this letter. He's in chains. He's writing this letter from prison. And the Philippian church has been really concerned for Paul. Uh, And presumably they've written to him or they've sent a messenger to him. Uh, And Paul wants to respond. They've been worried. How's your trial going? Because Paul is in jail prior to a trial, a judgment that could go any number of ways. Um, It could end with him being vindicated and set free, or it could end end with him receiving the death penalty. And so they're worried about him. And he writes back to them saying, you guys, no need to worry. All is well. Here's what he says, verse 12. They're not seeing what Paul sees. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul writes them and and he basically says, thank you for your concern. It's not needed. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. Right, the whole Roman guard, because I'm in prison, the whole praetorium, now knows that I'm in here for Christ. Furthermore, most of the brothers, I like how he says that, most of the brothers are now all the more bold to preach Christ because I'm in prison. So he says the gospel is doing what the gospel does. He wants them to know the truth that they should be rejoicing rather than worried. Here's the principle that we see here. What happens to me is not as important as what the effect of that happening is. That's the principle. What happens to me is not ultimately as important as what that does to me or through me or in uh, its effects in the world around. So in the list of priorities for his life, for Paul, the goal of gospel advance for the glory of God overrides any other goal he has. Whether that's a goal to be comfortable, to not be in places like jail, the goal of gospel progress overrides all other things. Which reminds me of the story of Joseph. You guys might be familiar with the story of Joseph. It's told in the book of Genesis, and it's a really crazy story. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Israel, whose whose original name was Jacob. So Joseph is the favorite son, and on account of that, his brothers hate him, and so they try to kill him. They throw him into a pit, and then they get guilty. One of the brothers says, ah, we shouldn't kill him. We should go get him and sell him into slavery. And so they go sell him into slavery, or excuse me, one of the brothers goes and sells him into slavery. And then... Things start looking good. He's in slavery, but then he gets, he rises up in one of his, in his master's house and then gets accused falsely of a crime and gets thrown back, thrown in prison. And then he rises up again and gets thrown in prison. And then at the end of the day, there's these, it's it's a story of ups and downs where these good things happen to him. And then he's falsely accused. He's, He's in the midst of these terrible circumstances and all of these terrible circumstances, one after another, eventually lead him to be the most, the second most powerful man in Egypt behind the Pharaoh. And we're told uh, that he's given a, the, the Pharaoh's given a vision and Joseph goes in to interpret the Pharaoh's vision. And through these circumstances, Joseph, God gifts Joseph the ability to save a whole lot of lives. Joseph helps the Pharaoh understand that there's a Pharaoh coming. They need to store up all kinds of resources and food. And as a result, many lives are saved by Joseph being where he was. And then his brothers come up to get food from him. And he's sitting in a place of authority. His brothers don't recognize him. And he reveals himself to his brothers. He says, guys, I'm Joseph. It's me. Look where I am. 
and they are terrified. Oh my gosh, he's going to kill us. We sold him into slavery. And here's what Joseph says. He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, but God. It's incredible. His brothers must have thought, hang on, we were the ones who sent you. <laughs> we, we did this to you. And Joseph says, no, no, no. It was God who did it all. And so he, he tries to convince them and they, they're reunited. He moves his family in. They live in the land. And then their fathers dies and his brothers still don't get it. When Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers are again terrified. They're like, maybe, I mean, he seemed forgiving, but maybe he was just trying to please our dad. And now that dad's dead, he's going to come kill us. And so they don't even, they're too scared to go into his presence. They send a messenger to Joseph and said, hey, could you please forgive us? We know we did the wrong thing. And then Joseph says it again. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's an incredible story. Terrible thing after terrible thing happens to Joseph. And at the end of the day, when faced with the very people who caused all of this to happen to him in the first place, he says, have no fear. God was behind it all along and God has done great things through it. There's many other stories like this in the Bible. The apostle Peter is crucified for his faith. The apostle John is exiled and is on the island of Patmos when he's given the vision that became the wonderfully encouraging book of Revelation. You fast forward to stories of the Christian church. Jim Elliott is the story of a missionary who goes to an unreached people group and immediately gets killed. And then his wife comes back later, forgives the people who killed her husband and has a fruitful gospel ministry in his place. The story of John Bunyan, you might know the, the book Pilgrim's Progress. That wouldn't have happened without the suffering that happened in John Bunyan's life. The story of Christianity is that of people suffering and ultimately God working through it for good. What others meant for evil, ultimately God uses for good. And of course, the prime example is Christ himself, killed by those in the world in such a way that those in the world might have a way to salvation. And this is how the gospel works. Paul wasn't trying to go to prison, but God used his painful circumstance for good. He looks at two things. He says, guys, people outside the church are hearing about Jesus because I'm in jail. People inside the church are all the more bold to tell people about Jesus because I'm in jail. Win-win, inside and out. It gets better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Let's read on. Paul's talking about those who are now, because of his imprisonment, much more bold to speak. And then he says this in verse 15, talking about those who are speaking about the gospel. This is what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here's what's going on. There's actually two things in Paul's circumstance that are deeply troubling. One, he's in jail, which may end up in him being killed. Two, to add to that, there are people who are insulting, people from within the church who are insulting Paul, who are preaching out of rivalry and selfish ambition, trying to take advantage of him while he's in prison. And this is probably personal. Paul is described elsewhere as a, a, a guy who's a little bit, we, we think of the apostle Paul as this gregarious, 
you know, crazy preacher. It sounds like he was really mighty with a pen, but in, in presence, he was, a, he was small of stature, uh, presumably, and probably soft-spoken, wasn't really the Paul who we picture standing up in the middle of a city and proclaiming the gospel. He, he, he likely stumbled over his words when he was speaking. So they were probably making fun of him. See, he's in jail, and they're jealous of his influence. They're making fun of him. And so what's Paul's reaction? At least Christ is being preached. Here's what he says. He says, what then? Verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. But they're preaching Christ. That's Paul's response. He's probably getting reports from people saying, hey, there's selfish people, Paul. They're trying to take your influence. They're trying to insult you. And Paul asks, well, are they preaching Christ? They say, well, yes. He says, great. The picture is of John the Baptist. It just reminds me of the story of John the Baptist who's preparing the way for Jesus. And he's this wonderfully powerful baptizing ministry. And then Jesus comes along and all of a sudden Jesus' apostles are baptizing a whole lot more people. And John's disciples come up to him and say, John, what are you gonna do? You're losing all the people. And John says, you know what he says, I must decrease because he must increase. It's actually the other way around. He must increase, I must decrease. Paul says, let's trust God with those vain preachers and trust the power of God's word because whether preached in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. If they're preaching Christ, then maybe their own preaching will call them to repentance. If they're preaching Christ, we can trust that God's word will not return void. Here's the key idea. God can work through any circumstance. Paul's in prison. There are those who don't have clean motives. Circumstances aren't great, but God is a God who can work through any circumstance. He will do his work both in the world and inside of you and inside of me through any circumstance. And here's the question before I move on is do we see, excuse me, do we see our lives this way? Do we filter our circumstances through this lens? We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's read on. Paul continues his thought from verse 18. We'll read. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And Paul continues, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is rejoicing, right, that Christ is being preached And then he goes on to rejoice at being confident in his deliverance. At first glance, it might appear that he's talking about being delivered from prison. He's in prison. They're praying for him. They've sent the spirit. And he says, I am sure of this, that this will all work out for my deliverance. We're thinking, oh, he's coming out of prison. God's given him a prophetic word that he's going to get released from jail. God could do that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about because he goes on and says, whether by life or by death, this will work out for my deliverance. And furthermore, it's worth pointing out that when Paul brings up deliverance, he quotes Job. Job, as you may know, is a story of a righteous man who suffers many terrible things. In the middle of Job, chapter 13, like 20 chapters before Job's restoration, so he's in the the thick of suffering, 
Job says this, he says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Speaking of God, Job has said, God can give, God gives, and God can take away. And Job says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And then Job says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And then just after that, Job meditates on his death. So it's interesting that that's the same phrase that Paul uses here in verse 19, right before he meditates on his death. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, whether in life or in death. It seems that Paul's joy is not in the fact that he will be released from prison. He crystallizes this point for, in, for us in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The key idea here is whether in life or death, Christ will be magnified. And this is worth pausing on for a moment. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a very powerful, powerful verse. It's been, it's been quoted often and it's beautiful and wonderful, but the English is almost doesn't do justice to the spin of what it sounds in Greek. I don't usually do this, but I want you to listen to what it sounds like in Greek. To zine Christos, to apothenine kerdos. Both, there's two levels of rhyme. Ta zine Christos, to live is Christ. Ta apothine kerdos, to live Christ to die gain. You know that in an age where people didn't have written Bibles, they would have left the re- hearing the reading of this letter, Tazine Christos, to Apothenine Kerdos. What's clear here, and Paul says for me, so he personalizes it. He's not just giving some detached principle. He says for me, in the midst of prison, in the midst of unfortunate circumstances, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. What's clear here as Paul goes on to wrestle with, is that he's torn because both life and death are good options for Paul. Listen to how he muses, starting in verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. I'm torn. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as we see, Paul is torn about this, tossed to and fro, going back and forth from, is it better to live or is it better to die? I could go and be with Christ, gaining everything that Christ promised in my death, or I could stay and serve for your sake. And as Paul goes on later in chapter, or in the beginning of chapter two, he says, complete my joy by being of one mind. Paul finds real joy in being here too, in his gospel labor. To read one quote, this prospect of reaping the fruit of changed lives by participating in the gracious work of God makes continuing to live so attractive that Paul is genuinely perplexed at the options between living and dying. To give a note on the cultural context to help kind of bring this home, Paul, his, Paul's life had been very difficult. He's in prison. It was marked by so much suffering that he might've been expected to view death as an appropriate and preferable way of escape. This was a common view in this Hellenistic background of the time. Life was really hard and death is an escape. But here, this is clearly not Paul's perspective. You see that? 
here and elsewhere, Paul's constantly asserting that painful life is joyful life since it's centered in Christ. This is central to Paul's teaching. The message of the gospel is not that we will suffer and just be miserable until we die, but it's okay because it's gonna be great when we get to glory. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not we're suffering and miserable, but it's okay. So let's just grab onto it because it's gonna be great one day. That's not what it is for Paul. To live is Christ. For Paul, the new creation in Christ has broken into the present. Eternal life, Paul is writing to the Philippians, is accessible to us right now. We don't have to wait for it. I was talking with my dad a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Some of you know my dad, you know he's not a believer. Um, He's not a Christian. And there's a few things in my dad's life that are really difficult for him to let go with respect to the invitation to follow Jesus. Um, and we were talking about it, and my dad told me, he said, Paul, I just, I, the difference, you see why I could never agree with you, is what he says, has, doesn't yet agree with me. But the reason I could never agree with you is because I don't believe in an afterlife. You have this great reward coming for you in heaven. That's how you see it, and so that justifies making sacrifices today, but I don't believe in that. So like right now, I want to pursue fulfillment. I don't want to give up these things. He said that to me. And what popped into my mind immediately was, this passage, and then another one that I actually read for him in that conversation from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And Jesus says this really crazy phrase. Jesus says, yes, following me sometimes means you're going to leave a lot behind. You're going to leave fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, lands. But Jesus says, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Here's the phrase, now in this time. He goes and lists out fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, so forth. It's an, it's an incredible promise that corrects the view that life right now is just terrible and it's going to be great when we get to heaven. Right, Jesus says it. Paul is saying it here. To live is Christ. Eternal life is available today. If you're in Christ, then you're in that. Notice that Paul here refers to the Holy Spirit that is sustaining him as the Spirit of Christ. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, Paul knows that Christ is with me. I'm not alone in prison. If I die, I'm not going alone to my death because Christ is with me here and now. This is what gives us joy. This is where we get the ability not to be anxious about our circumstances, not merely some future hope that will somehow numb us to the present. Actual abiding in Christ experiencing the otherworldly joy that he wants to give us here today. You see, we need to avoid this error on both sides. We can emphasize our future joy in a way that misses our present present joy. And that is a recipe for just building bunkers and waiting for Jesus to come back, right? Let's just hold on until Jesus comes back and gosh, it's going to be great, but I don't have no real hope that it's going to be. Through that lens, you might even think that if something good happens to you, then you're doing something wrong. On the other extreme, we can overemphasize our present joy in a way that misses that our full reward is yet to come. I don't want to make this point in a way that overcorrects on the other way either. You can, that's a recipe for the prosperity gospel, which says your best, you know what? Your best life is, life is supposed to be now. God wants you to be happy. And so if it makes you uncomfortable, then get rid of it because God wants you to be happy. Let's build our house here and live here and stay here because here's where it is. That's another, that's going off on the other side. You see, it's not an either or. 
It's a both and. There's this new album that just came out by a band. I don't know if you listen to Christian music. A band called City of Light called There Is One Gospel. We're going to sing one of the songs off of it just after this. Um, and the song on that album that comes after the one that we're going to sing just after this, this morning, uh, if you're following with me, <laughs> uh, is a wonderful song that holds this tension beautifully. It's called On That Day. It says, on that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun, and we're going to sing. Until that day, we're going to sing. And it just goes back and forth, the whole song. It brings tears to my eyes. I've been listening to it all week. It's a both and. It's going to be awesome when we see Jesus face to face. And it's awesome that we have Jesus to live is Christ. Of the two extremes, what would have been surprising to his original hearers was the joy that he talks about having now. You see, the Christian life is not, and I want to I stay here for just one more minute. The Christian life is not only about avoiding sin and trying to do as well as we can so that we can get to heaven. It is certainly about seeking to fight sin and about living to please God. Certainly about those things, but on an even deeper level. The level on top of which those outward things are able to manifest. It's about Christ living in us. And for Paul, it's not just about some inner spiritual life. It's about life in the body, lived out there. This, Paul tells us in verse 22, is about fruitful labor. If I'm to live in the flesh, I don't just walk around with false joy doing nothing because I'm a Christian who's happy all the time. There is real joy, but it's joy that bears fruit with your actual hands. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. And how does that happen? You might think of the words of Jesus in John 15, who said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we see for Paul, deliverance here is not about escaping from suffering. It's not about getting his life back on track. It's about entrance into a totally different kind of life. It's a life of enjoying communion with Christ, to witness for Christ, whether in life or in death. And even for Paul, notice, even for Paul, he's not perfect. He denies being perfect. Later in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to say, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul basically confesses in Philippians 3, he's like, I'm trying to do this too, guys. To live is not a static position, but a dynamic process of becoming and growing. For Paul, the purpose of living is pressing forward to know and to serve Christ more and more with each passing day. This is how you get to the point where you realize circumstances don't matter the way that you think they do. If your life is focused on you and what you can do, then bad circumstances will always be an interruption. If, however, your focus is on God and what God can do and what God is doing, then your joy is, sits beneath those circumstances. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To make just one more observation in this same vein, look at verse 20. Paul says this. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. 
It's my eager anticipation, excuse me, expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Paul is talking about being sure that no matter what happens, his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance. And then he uses that phrase, I know that I will not be ashamed. And I want to pause on this because it's a common biblical phrase. And it's kind of surprising how Paul uses it. It's a, it, it appears most commonly in the Psalms. Lord, let me not be ashamed. And it always happens in the midst of terrible circumstances. Oh, things are going, let me not be ashamed. And notice that's not what Paul prays here. He doesn't say, Lord, please let me not be ashamed. He says the opposite. He says, I know that I won't be ashamed because I have full confidence that God is always working in and through the gospel. Paul is awaiting trial, right? He knows that it may end with his acquittal and it may end with his death. But he knows that whatever happens, he will not be put to shame. How? Because his not being ashamed has been secured before, apart from his present circumstances. Whether or not he's going to be ashamed has nothing to do with public opinion. It's not, I don't want to be ashamed before others. It has to do with his standing before God, which has been fully and finally secured in Christ. You can almost hear Paul saying, as if Rome has a say on whether or not I'm ashamed. My status is all bound up in Christ. For Paul, being ashamed doesn't have to do with his reputation or the verdict at the trial, but instead doing or saying anything that's inconsistent with the proclamation of Christ. That's why Paul talks about asking for prayers that he would have full courage and that he would honor Christ in his body. To tie things together, this is the deliverance that Paul expects. He expects to be delivered into a life of being a bold witness, be delivered out of darkness into marvelous light, out of the Paul of the past into the Paul who God called him to be. God will deliver me. He will make me an effective and bold witness. And it doesn't depend on his circumstances. Rather, it depends on God who is with him, empowering, helping him so that if he dies, that'll be a bold witness. If he lives, he can be bold. This is all about the glory of God through witnessing to what he's done for us. So with all of that said, to put it simply, I want to pause on this picture. I think you see it. Paul loves Jesus. It's almost so obvious that we'll skip past this picture in this passage. The apostle Paul loves Jesus. Why? Because he knows that Jesus loves him. We're going to talk about this next week. Paul goes on from this chapter to wax eloquent for a few verses about how wonderful it is that Christ gave his life for him. God gave his life for me, Paul says. He's given me all of the joy and security and peace that I've spent my life working for. I've got everything I need. The only thing I have left to do is to tell others about how great he is. This sojourn is what life is all about. You know why the life and death language is so important to Paul? Because life and death are at the very heart of not just the gospel, but of all of human history. Christ, who gave his life for our sake, dying so that we might have life, taking our sins so that we might inherit his righteousness. It all holds together at the life and death of Christ. And so Paul is meditating on his own life and death and says... Either way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why Paul would prefer to depart and be with Christ. I want to be face to face with the one who gave it all for me. Or to stay and enjoy intimate union 
with the one who gave it all for him. Socrates, an ancient Greek philosopher, once said famously, the unexamined life is not worth living. You guys heard that? The unexamined life is not worth living. It, you know, Socrates is talking about those who don't ever think about ethics or why they do what they do. They just go to and fro wherever life takes them. The life of the philosopher is salvation through knowledge, right? Examining through knowledge. Paul takes this teaching and shows us what the truly examined life is. I've looked at it and nothing in myself is worth clinging to. Therefore, I count it all as lost for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my savior. I look at my life and I could cling to my circumstances to try to make them better, but I don't need to do that because I've already counted the cost. I've examined my life and nothing in my life is worth keeping more than God getting glory from whatever happens in my life. So to summarize, despite his circumstances, the gospel has gone forward. God can work through any circumstance. Whether in life or death, Christ will be magnified because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And on account of all of this, Paul has every confidence that he won't be ashamed, that he will be delivered. Come what may, whether he's honored or dishonored, whether he lives or dies, Christ is honored through his earnest gospel ministry, just telling people about how great Jesus is. And so what are we invited to do? I think there's three things. For the first thing, this is actually tucked in to the beginning of our passage. I want to ask you a question. What do you ask people to pray for you for? I'll just ask you a question. Just think about it. You don't have to answer out loud. What do you ask people to pray? Like when people say, how can I pray for you? How do you answer that question? When people don't ask you, how can I pray for you? What, how do you, do you make space to go and ask people to pray for you? Paul asks the Philippians to pray for him, and he says, listen to how he talks about prayer. He says that his deliverance comes through their prayers. That the spirit of Christ who is in him has come into him and is encouraging him more on account of their prayers. What kinds of things do you ask people to pray for you for? What do you actually need? Where do you create space in your life to ask people to actually pray for you? What do you need to be delivered through? What is going on in your life, whether it's out there or inside your heart? Are you asking people to pray for you? Paul is not some isolated spiritual giant. He's a brother among brothers and sisters who are doing life together and praying for one another. So the first thing, just as a suggestion, ask for people to pray for you and be honest. Thing number one. Second, there's a word of warning that I want to share. It's going to sound funny, but I think you'll, not funny. It'll sound off, but it'll make sense. I'd like to introduce you to two different gods. There's the God of all comfort. And then there's the God whose name is comfort. Two different gods. The one will give you joy and peace no matter how something feels. The one will be with you in any circumstance to give you comfort and life and joy. The other will tell you that if things feel bad, then they probably are bad and you got to get out of there. 
You gotta fix your circumstances so that you can get to a place of comfort because that is what you were made for. To illustrate this a little bit, uh, we have a shirt that a couple of our members work at an organization called Fostering Family, and there's a shirt that is often worn. Uh, you might have seen it around if you, if you remember it. So it says, things that matter are hard. Right? I love this shirt. It's a great shirt. I have one. I wear it. If we're not careful, though, I want to pause and I want to kind of double click on it a little bit, because if we're not careful, we might miss some of the nuance that's required to interpret that correctly, because we might take that and go off in two different directions. Let me give you an example. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that it matters. I'll give you a personal example. I've had a very hard week, personally. It's all been good things, thankfully. But I've had a very hard week. I've had more speaking engagements than I think I've ever had in one week. I think I've given five different talks, this one included. And I had two papers to write for a seminary class. Seven significant creative deliverables all in one week. As a result, it's been a very hard week. I've felt it in my body. It's been hard for my wife, my kids. And I could say, this is what God wants me to do. Because it's hard, I know that this is what God wants me to do. But I don't think, by way of confession, that that's what God is trying to tell me right now. I think God is trying to tell me that I'm sacrificing, I'm running the risk of sacrificing my health on the altar that sits before a different God. They're all good things. And, I'm, and, and I made my week really hard by saying yes to all of them. Therefore, things that matter are hard, it matters. I'm walking in God's will. You see what I'm talk talking about? We can misuse the truth of God. And I might be missing the thing that God is actually calling me to, to find my life not in what other people think of me or in how many things I can create or how good I am at whatever it is that I'm doing as a pastor, God wants me to find my life in Christ and in Christ alone. I think that's what God's trying to teach me right now. On the other hand, sometimes things that matter are easy. To give a simple example, I love playing with my kids. Occasionally it's hard, but most of the time it's very easy. And it matters a great deal that I play with my kids. Right? I don't need to be sitting there, man, this just seems too easy. <laughs> so, nuance. Where I think this sentence does hit the nail on the head, that there are things that matter that are hard, is that there are often things that matter that are hard, and people avoid doing them for any variety of reasons that are not God's will for our life. Paul is in prison because he held fast to his conviction. He knew that teaching about Christ and the gospel was going to put him in prison and was potentially going to put him liable to a life sentence, or excuse me, a death sentence. He knew that. On account of that, he could have decided, you know what, I don't need to do it this way. I could just stay reserved and quiet about all these things that I believe. God may be calling anyone in here to something that is hard, and you may be tempted to listen to the voice of another God telling you not to do the thing that God is telling you to do. Maybe you're in the middle of the conflict and you need to approach the other person. But someone in your life is telling you to just build a wall and shut them out. Maybe you're in the middle of a situation at work that's been killing your marriage, and you need to leave that job. 
but another God is telling you to stick with it because it's right where you need to be. Maybe you keep indulging in a particular and hidden sin and God is tapping you on the shoulder to tell you exactly what you need to do. Whether that be confessing your sin transparently and honestly for the first time or getting rid of your laptop or deciding not to use the internet after dinner time. God calls us to do things that are hard, promising that through things that are hard, it doesn't matter whether it's hard or easy, whether it leads to our death or to our life, Christ is there and he's with us, walking us into newness of life. John Piper wrote a book a long time ago, well, a long time ago for me, uh, called Don't Waste Your Life. I remember hearing uh, about this in college and thinking, man, this needs... This means I need to do something amazing with my life. I don't want to waste my life. But it's a really, at, the, at a nutshell, it, come, it came out of a book. Uh, he wrote the book after giving a talk to a, 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 an event with, looked like a million college students. And in it, John Piper points out that the American dream beckons people to spend their lives on trivial diversions, slipping through life, caught up with seeking success, comfort, and pleasure above all else. But God made people for far more than this. The people that make a durable difference in the world, Piper says, are not the people who have mastered many things, or, but they are people who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. To live is Christ and to die is gain. John Piper gives this illustration of a story where two missionaries, these women in their 80s, died all of a sudden in a horrific accident. And he asked the question, is this a tragedy? They'd done decades of faithful ministry and they drove off a cliff because their, their vehicle brakes failed because they were in a third world country and they died. He said, was that a tragedy? He said, no, that's not a tragedy. You mean in an instant, they died a painless death and now they're face to face with Jesus after decades of faithful ministry? Let me tell you a tragedy. And he pulls out a Reader's Digest. I mean, mo some of you have probably seen this video, so sorry, I'm basically ruining the video, but he pulls out Reader's Digest and says, couple in their old 50s retire early, drive around in an RV and collect seashells. He said, that's a tragedy. Not that collecting seashells and driving an RV are a tragedy. You see, following God's plan for your life might get you put in prison. I don't know what it'll be for you, Sojourn. I can't tell you what that thing is for you. Maybe the Lord is calling you to the Middle East. Maybe he's calling you to your block for the next 30 years. Maybe he's calling you to leave your job, or maybe he's calling you to put two feet in and really dig in and make it count. And love people around you well. Maybe God's calling you to foster a child, and you just haven't been ready to have that conversation yet, whatever it is. I don't know what God's calling you to, but I do know what will get in the way of God's calling, the God whose name is comfort. Instead, I want you and me to lay, lay down our lives before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, 
so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Sojourn, the Apostle Paul has put his finger on the center of the gospel. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let us be a people who live our lives before that God rather than any other. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your word. Thank you for this encouragement that no matter what is going on in our lives, you are good and you work all things for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Thank you for a reminder that you are purposeful with every detail of our lives and we have only to humble ourselves before you, cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us and rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who has been given to us. Please give us faith to believe, a community around us to encourage and pray for us, and lead us into the way of life in Christ, whether we live or die. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.